Clear. But it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's, not really no this is This is the best seat now. It's, it's got a runway in the front yard. <laughs> EAA Radio welcomes back the long-running general aviation podcast Uncontrolled Airspace to share the microphone for 90 minutes of virtual hangar flying. Now here are the voices in your head. The UCAP gang, editor Jeb Burnside, journalist Dave Higdon, and new media producer Jack Hodgson. Welcome, folks, to Uncontrolled Airspace, the general aviation podcast. Uh, we're coming to you live from the announcer stand at EAA AirVenture 2015. Whoa. It's been a rocking week. Uh, people are still hundreds and hundreds of airplanes on the field. Just one small housekeeping correction because of scheduling conflicts. Jack, the regular producer that does this job, is uh, not with us, and Jeb had to be home early. So uh, it's going to be Dave Higdon trying to fill in for Jack. And we've got our old friends of the podcast here, James Winbrandt. Great to be here. Tough shoes to fill. Yeah, really. Uh, I don't want this job. Uh, <laughs> and Larry Overstreet, who helped us at Sun and Fun with the uh, bootleg episode that we, are, I'm sorry, the hijacked episode that we did. And, yeah, uh, last time I got invited to be on UCAP, it was to get, uh, because I was in trouble. Yeah, and uh, well, the warrants were all canceled, no, canceled, nobody was arrested, so we're back in business. Uh, it's closing day. The field is still thick with airplanes. The sun is out. Uh, Going to be temperate, like the lady said, with, or the guy said with the weather report. And uh, this is our favorite way to wrap up our stint here at, uh, at, at Oshkosh. It's been another great show. Uh, we're going to read into the record a little bit of uh, information that came by way of the uh, FAA a couple of days ago. Ten unusual stats from uh, Oshkosh. Busiest tower in the world this week. Uh, we've heard that before. Yep. We, yep. 64 controllers, the best, the cream of the crop with the FAA controller staff. They work in teams of four, 16 of them. They all stick together and rotate through. Uh, let's see. The next one. Oh, the pink shirts that you see online in the field here. Those pink shirts are to differentiate the controllers from the flight line crew who wear orange. So it has nothing to do with any ugly things that you might think about. Uh, air traffic control reduces horizontal separation during the week to 1,500 feet from the normal 3,000. And then this way they can land as many as three airplanes at a time on uh, 1836, three at a time on 927. And they use colored dots on the runway to help pilots know where to land. Please land on the orange dot, the green dot, the red dot. And if everybody follows that, it's neat, clean, and, and highly efficient. And we know they build in a little bit of margin there, so if you're not comfortable getting it exactly on the dot, you're still going to have a warm welcome here. That's right. Yep. That's right. Let's see. The uh, Thursday. Thursday. This one kind of blew me away. Thursday saw 3,153 aircraft movements in the day. That's between wow. when the field opens, field closes for the night. Uh, they think that that's a record. Uh, we'll probably hear that confirmed later on. And so far, as of uh, Thursday, traffic here was up over 10% from 2014. That's great. We've just had great weather, so it's not hard to believe those numbers. Mm -hmm. When you hear them on the air and you're not here, it might be, that can't be. But when you're here and you're seeing them come overhead, departing, landing in the pattern, it's like, yeah, wow. It's that many? Okay, I can believe it. Yeah. 
And the weather this year was so good. Um, we saw it out in Camp Scholar also that um, judging from past years and just you know riding around the campground and so forth, uh, there were campers, for the people who know the area, all the way out to Highway 41 and all the way out to the south end of the property. And that seemed to include some newly opened up areas that they hadn't used in the past. And so it was just completely full. Yeah, and as uh, some of you might have heard on one of our dailies earlier in the week, when Jeb came in, uh, he had to get a parking permit from North Fond du Lac. He was so far <laughs> south of the, the yeah, departure end of 18. He, he said his row number was negative. So there you go. Saw John Zapp from the Flying Musicians Association dropped in, and he said when he was trying to come in, he had to land at Fond du Lac because they were putting out the word that all the parking spaces were gone, no camping areas. By the time he was taxing in, he was hearing people cleared to Oshkosh, so he didn't even shut down the engine. He just got back in the air and was able to get back in. Good. But that's how packed it's been. Well, North 40, we heard this from Dick Nepinski, EAA's uh, director of communications. Uh, the earliest in the week we've ever seen it where the North 40 on both the north and south sides mm-hmm. of 927 was full up mm-hmm. on Sunday night. No, no room in the inn. And every year, somehow, the weather seems to get better. I mean, there's always one weather event and here it was that saturday morning with a storm that blew mm-hmm. through did a little bit of tent upping up uh, tipping over just to let us know it could happen but then the rest of the week has just been glorious yeah, yeah it broke uh did some damage okay we did some damage to uh paul poberesny founding eaa guy his primary glider that he used to learn and and it chipped over the one week wonder that they built mm-hmm. last year but did no real damage to the one-week wonder. It was back on display later that day. Uh, so let's get to some of the issues here. Yesterday, uh, sorry, oh scratch that, Friday evening, uh, interesting group of pilots called the Airline Pilots Association. I'm not sure in consultation with their members, but the uh, headquarters in Washington went on a tear bashing the Pilots' Bill of Rights two proposal and specifically an attempt to amend the highway bill in Congress, which needs to get passed so that states continue to get their funds. Mm-hmm. So there's an effort on Tuesday to attach PBOR to, to that highway bill. And the Airline Pilots Association went on a tear. Uh, it was interesting to hear the reaction of airline pilots, ALPA mm-hmm. members active and retired here on the field when they heard that. Uh, didn't seem to be much support for the union. And EAA, Gamma, AOPA, the Allied Pilots Association, which is American Airlines Union, uh, the Southwest Pilots mm-hmm. Association, which is mm-hmm. Southwest Airlines Union, all fired back with all volleys. Uh, a lot of misstatements, a lot of uh, uh, misinformation in ALPA's statement. Mm-hmm. And yesterday at a little hearing with uh, Senator uh, uh, Jim Inhofe from Oklahoma, who wrote the PBOR 1 and 2, and, of course, uh, EAA Chairman Jack Pelton kind of went on a tear pushing back on it. You guys familiar with this? I was yes. there at, at the uh, press announcement when uh, Jack Pelton was uh, rolling it out. And, obviously, he said it was a very hastily called announcement, but that the letter had gone out at about 10 o'clock the night before, Friday night, like you said. Um, and the other thing uh, that he mentioned was that... Um, uh, there was no, you know, like even from the union members and so forth that are here on the field, other pilots and whatever, everyone was like, what the heck are they doing? You know, why why are they taking an attack like this? They've not been involved in any part, in any way, according to Jack, with the um, 
uh, the last five years of negotiations that have been going on um, and conver- you know, consultations and so forth. Um, but the thing that came through for most of us GA pilots who aren't members of those unions or you know, don't have a direct voice is the vote is coming up potentially as early as Tuesday. And so to, for those of you who are listening tomorrow, Monday, um, it's really critical that we get on the telephone with our own representatives and, and um, especially senators. Um, and at the press release, they gave out the, t- the main Senate uh, switchboard number, which is 202-224-3121. Uh, and what was that number again? Once again, that was 202 202- <laughs> Two two four, three one two one, and uh, that's the main Senate uh, uh, switchboard number. And you mm-hmm. can call there, tell them where you're from. They'll connect you up to the right office. And for both of your senators, um, you want to call and express support for PBR two and the um, uh, the attachment to the uh, uh, highway bill. And this is all about the third class medical exemption. Right. Yeah, that was Alpa's big target on this, and that's where most of the misinformation landed, was attacking the uh, uh, changes to the third-class medical requirement, which uh, PBOR2 would essentially eliminate for up to six seats, up to 18,000 feet, up to 250 knots, and, interestingly enough, day and night and IFR. Uh, so we'll be back with some more stuff here shortly, yep. but do follow up, folks. It's critically important. If we want to see this happen, uh, there are 54 co-sponsors in the Senate. They're really close to having enough to make it move, even against opposition. Yeah. And uh, your call could help turn the difference. Look online. You'll find the list of co-sponsors. If your senator's name's not there, get, get on him. the horn. Yep. Get or online. If his and and there, if they are there, get on the horn. Because the whole right. purpose of this letter was to not only uh, uh, hold off maybe some additional senators, senators who are on the fence, but also maybe pick off a few who were, um, you know, maybe supporting but not strongly supporting. There you go. So uh, we're going to be here for a while. You folks settle in, have your coffee and donuts, and uh, we'll be back and talk to a gentleman who has uh, some one of the more interesting flying experiences that I've read about recently. Broadcasting live from Whitman Field, this is Air Venture on EAA Radio Oshkosh. And now today's uncontrolled airspace update on weather and safety. First weather. Man, there's some whiskey tangle foxtrot weather out there. And now safety. Try to take off with one engine on fire and you never hear the end of it. And we're back with uncontrolled airspace on EAA Radio. Now here's Dave Higdon's take on the latest in weather forecasting technology. By a crew of three squirrels, two migratory birds, and a nest full of woolly worms. Uh, whatever. Back now with more of Uncontrolled Airspace on EAA Radio. Welcome back, folks. We're still live here at EAA Air Venture Oshkosh 2015, live on EAA Radio. Streaming out on the Internet, going out over the field. and uh, Looking over uh, the runway, watching the parade of planes. That's right. We got Boku traffic here. Uh, looks like the Aero Show guys are coming back in from their morning promo flight. So nice CB there, too. There you go. Painted in navy colors. We've got a gentleman here that I read about uh, several times in the past few months uh, into last year. And uh, by coincidence, we met at a little social event on Friday night, and he's nice enough to come on. I don't mind being interrupted by a P-51. They're fused down sweeter. Got a Mustang departing 1-8. 
gentleman named Bill Harrelson who uh, for some reason decided to take on uh, a, a goal of flying around the world but instead of the equator track or east to west or west to east, he did a north to south route in a Lancer and survived to tell the story. And Bill's with us here this morning. Good morning, Bill. Hi, Dave. Glad to be here. Uh, I, I, I got to ask, what possessed you to tackle this kind of project? Uh, mostly a lack of better sense. <laughs> You had just too much time on your hands, and yeah. life was too calm for you? Yeah, that must be it. Now, we had actually uh, had this as a goal for over 10 years and uh, specifically built the uh, Lance Air 4 for uh, these long-distance uh, records. That, uh, in, in terms of days and hours, how much uh, time did it take for you to actually accomplish this? Well, the uh, around the world over both poles was... Uh, 24 days, uh, I believe 8 hours, 10 minutes, 4 seconds, something like that. So about 24 days. And how many miles uh, did it add up to? I actually flew uh, 36,000 miles, but didn't get credit for those due to the, uh, the way the rules for the, uh, uh, at the Federation Aeronautique International for the records are set up. Uh, you still got certified for a record on this? Yes, yes. Uh, just uh, recently, within this past month, we got word that it is now official and is the official world record, beating the old one that had stood for 28 years. Congratulations. Thanks. Now, what had to go into the Lance Air to make it capable? I mean, you did some long water legs on this. Uh, mostly gas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, that's the, uh, the obvious... Uh, and primary uh, modification we had to make, there was a total of 10 fuel tanks, and we carried a grand total of 361 gallons in an aircraft that normally carries 78. What uh, model, may I ask, of Lan what model of Lance Air is so, that? Lance Air 4, a non-pressurized, non-turbocharged, normally aspirated Lance Air 4. Uh, that's a bloody lot of gas. <laughs> it's a lot of gas, yeah. Well, how difficult was fuel management? Uh... It was actually, during the flight, it wasn't uh, difficult. It was difficult actually during the building process. In any aircraft, there's plenty of room, plenty of room for as much gas as you want, any aircraft. What there's not is plenty of center of gravity envelope for uh. more gas. So it was uh, a lot of effort to get as much gas as we could as far forward as possible. And we still ended up with a pretty far aft CG when we had... Uh, when we had full fuel in there. Did you have much more than a toothbrush with you on this? No, no. Uh, uh, both in building the aircraft and in uh, equipping it and packing and things like that for personal belongings, uh, we really, we, we used the Burt Rutan uh, weight test uh, to see. How, how does that work? Well, uh, word has it that uh, when they were in Burt Rutan shop, when they're trying to decide whether a particular uh, item is too heavy to take along, they uh, throw it up in the air, and if it comes down, it's too heavy. <laughs> <laughs> Who owns that airspace, Bill? How do you get permission to fly over the poles? Do you need to do that? You do, uh, if you're a U.S. citizen anyway. Uh, the Antarctic is governed by the uh, Antarctic Treaty. So if you are a citizen of a signatory of the uh, Antarctic Treaty, you are bound by, uh, by their rules. So I, I had to get... Uh, permission from the um, State Department, the um, National Science Foundation, and the EPA. 
to go over the uh, South Pole. Is that difficult to get that permission? It, the pathway toward getting that permission is not at all set up toward light aircraft. It's set up toward cruise ships going to Antarctica, so I had to fill out forms asking me such things as, you know, how many helicopters were on my ship and things like that. They just, uh, you know, uh, the idea of a, a single person in a light aircraft doing it by themselves just is not built into that pathway. But once it was explained to the authorities and they understood and uh, gave them the background on it, they, uh, uh, they were very cooperative and uh, took about three months, but we, we got the permission. Bill, I'm Rob Ryder. I'm on the announcer's team. Hi, Rob. And I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and I know what happened in 1964 and with Jerry Mock when she jumped in a 180 and flew around the world in 31 days, a little longer than your trip. I was just listening to you on EAA radio coming back, coming down here to the announcer's stand. Did, did you ever think about Jerry Mock's flight when you were in the process of setting up for you? Because that was, you know, first woman solo around the world in a single-engine airplane, and sounds like you did it the same way. Not with Lance Air, but, you know, not with an airplane that would go 900 miles on one leg. Or did you? Did I go 900? I went, uh, the longest I've gone is 8,000 miles on one leg. 8,000 miles, miles without stopping? <laughs> yes, that's right. That brings up a whole list of other questions now, doesn't it? How long, yeah. of a, how long was that? Uh, that Time-wise. 38 hours, 39 minutes. And that was not during the polar trip. That was another world record uh, uh, that we set in 2013. That was Guam to Jacksonville, Florida for the distance Non-stop. record. Non-stop. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so you had a little practice Pretty before stupid, you started huh? on the polar trip. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Did you, like, you know, Guam to Jacksonville, well, hmm, Los Angeles is coming up. Maybe I'll take a little stop there. Yeah, very tempting, very <laughs> tempting. But unfortunately, if you're going for a world record, what you can't do is fly a long distance or fly real fast or do whatever you're going to do for the record and then call up the authorities and say, hey, here's what I did. Give me a record. All of this stuff has to be uh, declared ahead of time, and there's a lot of paperwork, and, uh, you know, uh, officials have to weigh the aircraft and have to seal flight recorders in the aircraft so it, if i had landed anywhere other than jacksonville even if it had been further i wouldn't have gotten the record interesting even if it was further yes because you have to say before what your objective is you have to declare it yes and i can hear some people wondering why you didn't get credit for some of that mileage can you explain if i as i understand it you filed for this point to this point but had to do a little bit of a triangle to get to that point Yes, on the, on the polar flight, the way the rules are set up is you don't have to declare any points at all. If you don't, you get credit for the shortest possible distance, that is the great circle distance, from pole to pole to pole. If you're not going to fly a straight line along that route, uh, you can declare points, and you get credit for the shortest possible distance, again, the great circle uh, route, between those declared points. The disadvantage of declaring those points is once you've declared them, you must reach those points. And you pulled it off. Uh, yes. What was With your longest leg on the polar? On the polar. On road. the polar, the longest leg was from uh, Kinston, North Carolina, to Montevideo, Uruguay, and that was about, I believe, 5,100 miles. So it was a piece of cake compared to the uh, to the east to west one at Guam to uh, where, did, where did you say Guam that was to it? Jacksonville? Jacksonville, yeah. yeah. Bill, you've obviously been to a lot of airports, a lot of places. 
your thoughts on being here at Oshkosh this year? Oh, it's, it's always great to be at Oshkosh. I've been coming to Oshkosh for over 30 years, and it's always exciting. Every day is different. I love it. Did you fly the Lancer up here? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> and you probably didn't need near as much fuel. <laughs> no, no, didn't, didn't need all those extra tanks. Another adventure uh, up ahead for you? I'm actually prohibited from competing in any more world record attempts. How is that? That's what my wife said. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she's a higher authority than FAI. You betcha. <laughs> uh, well, uh, if you had the latitude to do another one, have you ever given a thought to what that would be? No, I haven't really thought about any other records. We are going to take the airplane, though, Sue and I, my wife and I, uh, to the South Pacific this uh, this winter. We're going to go to Hawaii and uh, Rarotonga, New Zealand and Australia, Vanuatu, just just as a vacation, not for records. Just, <laughs> no, I understand. Uh, have a good time. It'll take a little bit different preparation, I'm sure, because I imagine that your your bride will want to bring more than a toothbrush. She's very good. You know, we flew our little uh, Lance Air 320 to Europe, and she's she's quite good at uh, packing quite light. We we share a toothbrush when we do that. Oh. Yeah. Did you do the North Atlantic route on that? Well, we did, and uh, and and Sue is uh, you know when we fly together, she flies every other leg. She's an accomplished pilot, a retired triple uh, seven captain for United, so. Okay, so you, you've got a built-in navigator to assist and a second-in-command, well... And a chief pilot. <laughs> there you go, there you go. Uh, I'm just stunned. I, I, my late wife and I talked several times about trips we wanted to take in our airplane, a couple of them legs that I'd flown before on Part 91 trips. The North Atlantic trip to Europe was one of them because you can do that on some pretty short legs if you plan carefully and you don't True. run into weather between... Greenland and Iceland. Yes. Uh, and then the next one in our mind was around the perimeter of South America. Ah, that'd be a good one. Yeah, mostly because we figured that would be the most fun way to see uh, the tip of the continent and uh, and then make our way back up the uh, West Coast. Maybe divert over to the uh, uh, Galapagos Islands and uh, see the big turtles. Uh, so I'm highly envious of the trip you got ahead of you in the South Pacific. That just sounds extraordinarily fun and uh more romantic than anything missioner could have conceived <laughs> bill a, a lot of around the worlders do come here and make oh Oscar. yes so do you talk to them here have you had to that help talking to them do they give you advice before do you give them advice sure sure uh we share stories share advice you know hey i had a good fuel stop here it was cheap fuel easy easy customs or whatever or you might want to watch out for this place. It takes five hours to get through customs, things like that. Mm. Sure, yeah, we uh, we share this information. One of the things I've noticed about the, the competitive aspect of, of these world records is the competitors are extremely cooperative with each other. And, uh, you know, the guy whose record you're trying to break will often help you. Wow. And, uh, nice. and offer you advice and loan you equipment or things like that. That's great. That's aviation for you. Very and sporty. Some of the work I've done recently uh, about private aviation using international uh, just really drove home just how complex it can be in dealing with the authorities of some of the other nations. Yes. Was there one region or one country that, sticked out, that sticks out as the easiest and or the worst? We, as I mentioned earlier, we this had been in the planning for 10 years, so we really did a lot of homework and... Uh, had plenty of time to write off for permits and things like that. So the places we planned to go, there was never any problem. Everything went smoothly. But uh, 
we had one large uh, upset in our big plan. That is, when I got to the South Pole, the headwinds uh, and the weather were such that could not continue to New Zealand as we had planned. So we had to turn around at the South Pole without landing, go back to South America. Then, because we had declared Hamilton, New Zealand, we still had to get there. Um, weather was not conducive for, to going direct, so we ended up trying to go through Tahiti. And uh, that, that last-minute change did cause some problems. That was difficult to get permits and required uh, substantial delays to arrange the permits. Bill, you are high on my list of admired pilots. We really appreciate you coming on Uncontrolled oh, Airspace. You're listening to EAA Radio Live, Uncontrolled Airspace from EAA Airventure Oshkosh. We'll be back in a moment. You're tuned to EAA Radio, the voice of EAA, 96.5 FM, 1210 AM, and online at eaaradio.net. Here's Jack Hodgson talking to his friends in the virtual hangar. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. And here's Jack Hodgson talking to FISDO. That story is slightly true, but not completely true. You're back now with more of Uncontrolled Airspace on EAA Radio. On the deck on EAA Radio at EAA AirVenture Oshkosh 2015. Lots of traffic. We got a uh, we got a DC-3 Flaybob Express, I think it says, warming up just uh, to the south of us. So if you hear a little extra rumble, uh, I'm sure all our pilot friends will understand the... Uh, the appeal of hearing, smelling kerosene and ab gas in the morning, and we're getting plenty of that. Uh, what do we got coming up? And then uh, uh, just uh, taxiing up north there, we've got Greg Kuntz, uh, Extreme Decathlon, getting ready to take off. Nothing like the little airplane stuff. We're fortunate to have another great guest in the hangar with us here this morning, uh, a, a real veteran of this show from both sides of the, uh, the flight line. Uh, Adam Smith with the Commemorative Air Force, and uh, he's wearing a shirt that says, there we go, tri-motor. He's wearing a shirt that uh, is uh, highlighting uh, the CAF's latest restoration project. That's all, brother. You may have read about it. We'll let Adam kick in. Welcome to the podcast, Adam. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, Adam. Hey, Adam. Great to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Uh, it was too good an opportunity to pass up when I saw you Friday night. <laughs> Absolutely. So, me having to fill in on Jack's job, uh, kind of a fish out of water. But it, this is all working out much better than I expected. Well, you guys, uh, you guys are the original and still the best. So I, it's, a, it's an honor to be with you. We, we appreciate <laughs> it. So tell us about That's All, Brother. Um, well, I guess it's an appropriate phrase for today, right? Last day yeah. of Avenger, That's All, Brother. Um, this is the airplane that... that uh, led the D-Day invasion. Um, on uh, the evening of June 5th, 6th, uh, 1944, uh, we sent a formation of 801 uh, airplanes over Normandy and dropped 13,000 paratroopers. And leading that formation was um, uh, the C-47 that the CAF has just acquired called That's All Brother. And I, th I don't think anyone imagined that it, it had survived. You know, it, it was it was um, it was filmed taking off for D-Day. It was uh, it had all the dignitaries on waving them off and things like that. And um, but I, you know, I don't think anyone had just had taken the time to research the serial number and see if this airplane still survived. But about 18 months ago, I saw a blog posting actually right from here, Whitman Regional Airport, and it said. The airplane that led the D-Day invasion is sitting in the in the boneyard here at Basler. 
And as as uh, as you may know, uh, Basler, just across the field from where we're sitting right now, um, they're in the business of converting old DC3s and C47s into. They remanufacture them into modern turboprops, they, um, and they're mm-hmm. great aeroplanes. But they they tear them apart, put turboprops on them, stretch the fuselage, and do lots of interesting things. And so I got real interested in that because I just joined the CAF at that time, and uh, we're looking for interesting stories and looking to get some momentum in the organization. And you know, one thing led to another, and here we sit today. We just announced this week that formally that the CAF is going to acquire this aeroplane. And um, we're going to restore it back to stock D-Day configuration so that we can, um, you know, just share the story of what the airplane did and what it represents. And it's uh, the response has been absolutely unbelievable. It's been very, very humbling, actually, just to just to um, understand the feeling that the people of the United States of America and many other countries have for, for D-Day and for World War II and... Um, you know the the desire to preserve and fly this airplane again is enormous. What's it going to take to restore it? How long do you think that'll be? Um, I'll know a lot. I'll not have a more precise answer to that question in about a month's time. Literally tomorrow after the show, it's going to be um, go back to Basler, and the wings are going to come off the airplane this week. And we haven't had a chance to just look in, right inside the wings and have a look at the spars and things like that. Everything else we've been able to look at, we've got some corrosion we're going to need to deal with. The airplane spent a lot of time outside. and um, So at this point, you know, I'm sort of thinking it's somewhere between half a million and a million and a half dollars to, to get it where we need to be. And, um, you know, everybody keep your fingers crossed that when we open up that, that wing tomorrow um, that it looks, it looks really nice and clean in there, you know. Can people help with this in some way? Absolutely. The um, uh, we actually concl- we did a Kickstarter campaign, which was was a really um, fascinating cool. uh, experience. We um, uh, we launched that a couple of days before the D Day anniversary, deliberately, so we could sort of catch mm-hmm. that wave of interest. And um, we we decided to try and raise seventy five thousand dollars, and we had thirty four days to do it on Kickstarter. And uh, we put the word out there. I remember going for my morning jog on June the fourth, and I thought, well. You know, we may fall on our faces here, but 36 hours later, we had $75,000. Wow. And it, it was that's great. Congratulations. Um, that's great. Um, so we actually extended the, the campaign and, and set, set a stretch goal. We ended up raising $328,000. Oh, that's and, terrific. Um, Congratulations. It, it, it was really, it's, it, it's great because in some ways, um, the traditionally fundraising, is, particularly here in the USA, has been something that, it's it's about it's really about rich people giving big big donations and and um, this was a very democratic way of raising funds mm-hmm. because the average donation was you know about one hundred and fifty dollars and so twenty one hundred people have been able to participate in this and I love I absolutely love that so to answer your question um, if people go to the website that's all brother.org, um, you can still make a donation until the end of this month. Um, you can still make a donation and, and get the various rewards, hats and T-shirts and things like that. What do I have to do? How much to contribute to get uh, an, uh, a, f- a ride on one of those early flights? Um, $250. Is basically, pre we're pre-selling flights on the airplane <laughs> to help, help get it restored. So um, if you want one of those, $250 is the cost. Now, how did Basler find out? How did they kind of put it together that this was the original plane that kicked off the D-Day invasion 
they got a call from uh, a researcher with the Air Force who was the guy. He was actually here this week. He, had, he, he said, I've been working on this project, trying to find this plane for seven years. Mm-hmm. And, and I was with him on the golf cart when we came around the corner. It was the first time he'd actually seen it with his own eyes. It was, so it was an Air Force researcher called Matt Scales. And he just he was dogged. He tracked it down through 16 different owners mm-hmm. that, it, that they'd been. And... Um, yeah, he, he, he was the guy that called Basler and tell, told him, hey, do you, do you guys wow. know what you've got? Now, commemorative Air Force, you're, you're involved in so many Warbird projects. What about here? What else are you showing the folks here? What are you doing? You know, this has been a big week for the CAF. Everywhere I look this week, there seemed to be a CAF airplane. Obviously, we some of the eye-catching things we've done are uh, Fifi, the B-29, has been one of the stars of we've the show. We've been seeing that in the air. It is uh, just gorgeous. Tora, 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 of course, is a, a big uh, CAF act. And um, then around the grounds, we've had the... Um, sea Fury's been here. The SB-2C's been here. And uh, the bucket of bolts, the C forty five's been here. We had a uh, another C forty seven that we have. Blue bonnet bell mm-hmm. was here, and of course, I'm probably offending some unit now by forgetting to mention <laughs> their plane. But we, we, you know, we have 162 planes, so th- those are the ones I've seen. Oh, the Wisconsin Wing had their uh, PT twenty six here, and so yeah, it's been there's just been a lot going on from the CAF point of view. Oh, red tail P fifty one. I shouldn't forget that. Where's the uh, where's the work going to be done? Um, well, we're still working on that, you know, as we establish what the work, work will be. But I think it's likely that at least the first phase of the restoration will be done by Basler because they have the jigs, they've got the staff, the experience. They, they can get the wings off a C-47 in, a, uh, in an afternoon, whereas the last time we tried to do that with volunteers, it took us about four months. So, it, you know, there are certain things that they can, they can do really well. Um, so we're hoping... You know, Basler can help us with the first phase. We, there may be a point where we fly the airplane away to get painted and to do some of the more intricate restoration stuff, you know, on the interior and things like that. So do you have a timetable on this, or is it kind of it'll be done when it gets done? Um, we're, we are in a, in a classic time-cost-quality management triangle if, uh, for, for people that are familiar with that. And so, you know, it, I, I, in the best of circumstances, I think... Uh, this this will be done in about a year's time from now. In the worst of circumstances, maybe two years is is what I'm what I'm feeling right now. So in that in that time frame, where can people go to help out? That's allbrother.org. We've got uh, an information page there, and lots of there's videos. You can see the history of the plane. You can uh, learn learn all about it. And but of course there is a donate now button that we would be delighted if people would uh, would press. <laughs> Well, as we've been talking here, the uh, the uh, root airplane of the C-47, the DC-3, was taxiing out in the colors. And it's named Play Bob Express. It's decked out as an old uh, uh, 1930s airliner. Yeah, that's uh, John Goldenbaum's airplane. He is the president of Stitz Polyfiber. And uh, John has actually been very helpful to us as an organization, been helpful as, as we've been thinking about the restoration of that soul brother. Uh, I'm really excited to hear about this. I, when I get home and check the uh, checkbook, uh, I'll have to see. I may, I'm, I may have to donate 250 twice mm-hmm. so I can bring along a friend. Oh wow! I want them to take pictures of me in the bloody thing. So <laughs> I'd love to ride on that airplane, but I'd even more just love to see it restored and flying. My dad was in the 101st. He got towed over in gliders. The first one crashed. They put him in another one took them over again wow i didn't know that james um well this airplane actually did two missions on d-day it led the invasion and then in the evening of d-day did a glider mission wow. with the with the 82nd airborne adam wow. 
really appreciate you coming by. It's so good to bump into you Friday. Uh, we wish you all the success in the world. And we know with CAF's reputation, you're going to pull it off. Folks, you're listening to EAA Radio live on the Internet. And this is Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. We'll be back in a few minutes. Hi, I'm Chris Hadfield, commander of the International Space Station, and you're listening to EAA Radio. So is anyone talking about Skynet today? Skynet. 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 When does Arnold come? It becomes self-aware at 2.14 a.m. Eastern Time. Skynet. Skynet. Back now with more of Uncontrolled Airspace on EAA Radio. Back live on the deck, the announcers stand on EAA Radio, streaming on the internet. This is Uncontrolled Airspace, the general aviation podcast, doing our wrap-up on EAA AirVenture Oshkosh 2015, back with our good friends James and Larry, and uh, you all heard about the old one. Time to ask some more uh, convention-centric questions. Do you guys buy anything this week? I, you know, Dave, I've been working all week, haven't had a chance, so this is my shopping day. I'm planning to go, though. I'm still working on the ADSB solution, and I want to go by Avidyne, where they're having their genius counter. You can go in there, tell them your panel, or bring a shot of your panel. They will tell you what your options are, and they're not just pushing Avidyne. They'll give you the whole rundown, so I'm looking forward to getting over there. I bought two things other than, you know, food and normal normal kind of stuff. Um, one was a book for my grandson called Turbo, the Fl- uh, Turbo uh, Learns to Fly. It's the second one in the Turbo the Flying Dog series. Ah. Uh, you can see those at TurboTheFlyingDog.com. Um, it's uh, Victoria Zyko, uh, and Turbo is her actual real dog. And so these are stories about her nice. dog that they uh, took in as a, a shelter animal um, and uh, take around in their glass air and do all kinds of fun things. So, Well, as anyone who's flown with their pet knows, they like to go. Well, they don't always like to go, but you like to have them with you. So you, there are ways now. We also see products here to help people have their pets on board comfortably. Exactly. The other thing I bought was uh, at the... Um, uh, what is it called? The Parch Exchange, I think it was, whatever. Uh, and uh, I bought a broken attitude indicator for 7 bucks to sit on my shelf at work. I'm getting quite a little uh, uh, shelf full of old, broken instruments, radios, you so know, whatever. So you're going to make your office IFR capable? Is exactly, <laughs> exactly. But you'll have to do it old school. There's no glass in that panel. <laughs> I, uh, my situation is the same as James. This is my one day free of the uh, show daily job which I love it to death but boy it's hard to get out and see anything uh, we have the 8th newspaper out this morning uh, you can find it online uh, we highly suggest if you want to pick, catch up on what's been going on here all week you check out AirVenture today uh, on the internet through the EAA site everything's there I'm planning on doing a little shopping, mostly uh, picking up my uh, kid airplane shopping, and I want to visit some avionics vendors, um, approaching the trigger point on deciding on a kit and uh, spending the actual money. Uh, uh, any thoughts on what sort of kit you might be going with? Uh, yeah, uh, I narrowed it down to three at Sun and Fun, and I came away from Sun and Fun most impressed with one particular model, but until I actually write the check, I'm going to withhold that. You're going to keep us in suspense. I don't want to get people started asking me about a project that I decided maybe wasn't for me. But uh, part of the hang-up is I'm hoping to use uh, money out of a 
sale of a runway property in Tennessee to finance this whole thing. And that actually just got started the week before I left for Oshkosh. Mm. So uh, the real estate agent's very encouraging about the property, the price we're asking. And uh, right now that area in Tennessee is pretty hot. So, uh, but I will, whatever I pick, take the quick build option. <laughs> I'd really like to be smart. able to fly something up here next year. Well, speaking of experimental aircraft and kits and putting things together and projects, it's been great to see Burt Rutan back here at Oshkosh this yeah, week. For sure. You know, and that's a little collection, little collection. <laughs> that that acre of parking area that's nothing but Rutan designs is uh, really quite a stunning reminder of uh, uh, just what a prolific engineer and an aircraft creator he is and it was such a kick i'm pretty sure that it was him i saw arriving in the pattern uh during the uh, flying display a few days ago and one of the very 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 few remaining beach starship 2000s well you know he's had so many incredible designs as you say so a lot of them are on display here catbird spaceship one and i'm sure a lot of people wonder what it's like to fly those aircraft and the fact is Soon they will be able to fly almost every single one of them because another piece of news here was the unveiling of Rutan RC. A couple of longtime associates of Bert have started a model, radio controlled model aircraft company. And Bert, like so many in the experimental community, started with radio controlled aircraft. And they yeah. are going to be recreating radio controlled models of every one of his 46 aircraft. And he was there at the announcement at the press area when they rolled out these and they have a model of Spaceship One and White Knight One, which are going to be the second. First will be Long Easy. And it was great seeing Bert there with his with his models. And he joked, well, this company must have the death wish because they only have 46 airplanes they can make now. <laughs> but in that Starship that I mentioned, that, that that's one of his creations as mm -hmm. well. He did the 85% uh, scale for beach aircraft, debuted it at the 19, uh, I believe it was the 1983 or 84 NBAA in Dallas. Uh, unfortunately, it was not one of uh, beach aircraft's more successful aircraft from a sales perspective, but it broke ground in composites. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate enough to get a little left seat time in it uh, back during my Wichita Eagle days. And from a pilot's perspective, there was not a sweeter airplane I've ever mm -hmm. flown. Uh, even doing an, uh, a two minimums ILS with one engine shut down. Wow. But he hasn't slowed down. He debuted or has been talking about a new aircraft here that he's getting ready to, to fly himself. I think uh, first destination is Hawaii that he's got in mind for his uh, amphib. Right. That would be... Uh the, the ski gull. Yes. <laughs> a, a, an amphib with skis that uh, help it float. Uh, it's right, quite a departure mm -hmm. from what we're used to in amphibs. And uh, Bert was quite candid in confessing that the hydrodynamics of it were tougher than the aerodynamics of it. Uh, it doesn't surprise me. Water is so much denser. Kind of <laughs> like me. But it's uh, interesting that instead of pontoons or the hull, well, I'm sure it will have a hull that is also hydrodynamic, but it will deploy skis to sort of get up on the Help step. get up quick. on the step. Yes. Okay. And there are little wheels under the skis, so there's your, your land portion of the amphib aircraft. Yeah. Uh, if anybody in this business can make it real, uh, it's, it, it's going to be Bert. So what is there left that you still want to see this week? 
Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you think about it. We'll start with Larry. You know, there's really not a lot. I, I feel like I got a chance to go see all the things I wanted to. Um, I saw the people I wanted to see, a lot of old friends, um, uh, a lot of new friends, you know, a lot of people that we camp with, certain vendors that you know, I stay close to over, over the years. Um, and so I, I really felt like I had a great week. That's outstanding. Well, you got a you got a great group down there at Camp Bacon. Uh, uh, Jeb was uh, uh, bragging on how much fun he had down there. We we uh, do have a good time. Um, it's a good group of folks. We you know kind of plan an arrival date and all buy our camping from that date forward, uh, so we can go secure the space. Um, and uh, uh, then I end up spending probably half my time there. Um, during the show, just because there's always something going on down there, uh, people coming and you know going, friends. It's like its own little village. It is. It really is. So, what about you, James? Well, what I still have to see, I, I'm still scratching my head here, but I have to say, I have seen quite a lot that I've enjoyed seeing so far, and new aircraft. And again, it's not just the certificated things. It's great to see Vulcan Air here, the former Pardonavia, that is now ramping up to bring their product back to the United States. So they've got a beautiful twin and light twin, which I think will help perk up the light twin market. Uh, flight design with their C4, very exciting to see how they're proceeding as if the rewrite of Part 23 has occurred. They're going under the European CS23 standards with the assumption that the FAA indeed will pick up on that and validate the design. Uh, Extra, our good friend Patty Wagstaff was here with the Extra 330LX, a new two-place that is actually capable. We, we can see it right Sitting here. Sitting right down it's, here on the ramp. Ready to go for the air show, but it is a two-place aerobatic extra they already have a two-place, but that aircraft is more suitable for training than actual hardcore performing. Uh, and this is a, a step up, and it's great to see Patty flying it. Uh, another new ship here, the Goodyear Zeppelin had a chance to go and meet with the pilot the other day. And, of course, what, what do you know? He's an avid home builder. He's working on a Sonics. This is the fourth time he's flown in in a Goodyear dirigible. But he was here three times earlier just because he loves aviation. So great stories, great aircraft, nice. great people. Watching it do its display yesterday, oh. the maneuverability in that puppy with the tail. Yeah, uh, that's impressive. Articulating engines. Uh, unlike anything you'd ever see with the uh, old, pardon the expression, gas bags. Yeah. And also, great to see what's happening with something that I know we all care about, we don't always talk about so much, the next generation. We are here, here we get to see some kids who come here with a passion for aviation. Uh, the kids from the Lakeland Aero Club, who I met last year, mm -hmm. are back again. They barnstormed their way up with a bunch of vintage aircraft. One, a Piper Cub, totally rebuilt by the teens in this program. Here also we saw the unveiling of the Youth Aviation Program Association that is going to act as a clearinghouse for these youth groups all over the country so they can share information, get information on how to start these clubs and projects. And you, you see that the next generation of aviators is in great hands. It's just that we need more of them. Well, one of the more, uh, I don't use this word off, often because I'm the wrong generation. One of the more awesome things I saw here this week was a B-52. Oh. The, the buff. Oh. Come yeah. by, reject a landing, come back around, make it, and spend a, most of the week on uh, Boeing Plaza. Yeah. Uh, and the irony just washed over me when the Airbus came in. 
So there's an Airbus A350 XWB mm-hmm. on Boeing Plaza mm-hmm. with a B-52 right next to it. <laughs> Pointing uh, right at it. <laughs> you know, it, it, it doesn't get much more ironic than that. Uh, but the amount of preparation they had to do to prep the runway the runway lights and signs because of the wingspan of that. That all had to come down. Well, the runway is 150 feet. The outriggers are 148. On the B-52. On the B-52. Yep. And the wingspan's even wider. So uh, a young man, far younger than the airplane he was flying, wasn't quite sure of the look that first time around. He actually found runways on simulator programs that were similar to this. Flew B-52 approaches to those runways. So he could get familiar with the sight picture. Yeah. And still, when he got here, he didn't like the look of it. I think they might have asked him to land on the first dot, but I'm not sure. <laughs> I didn't know that was a rejected landing. I just saw them do the flyby that you often yeah. see the big guys do, and it was incredible. And then I found myself right in f- having to go to Boeing Plaza to look at that thing. Well, and he had times. that little bounce there and in, uh, in, in, uh, in hearing about his, uh, his experience. The airplane was the lightest on arrival that he'd ever flown it. No fuel in the wing tanks at all. It was all okay. fuselage tanks. So he got a little hop there. Uh, and uh, you can see some footage of that online. Uh, we're getting close to another break here. Uh, we've got plenty more to talk about, so hang in with us. This is Uncontrolled Airspace, live on EAA Radio from EAA Air Adventure Oshkosh 2015. All right. You're listening to the voice of EAA. EAA Radio, 96.5 FM, 1210 AM, and Radio.net. They could have titled their podcast Class G Airspace, but I can distill it down into something much simpler. Why, why is this coming to light now? A slow news day? Back now with more of Uncontrolled Airspace on EAA Radio. And we're back again live on the announcer stand on EAA Radio. This is Uncontrolled Airspace, our closing day podcast from EAA AirVenture Oshkosh 2015. Uh, if you uh, listen closely, you may actually hear the sound of an airplane going by in the background. Uh, you guys, we've been talking about the week. We've had some great guests so far. What's next? Well, we were talking about Boeing Plaza, and, and you know, with the lineup of aircraft, it takes, I think, a little more time to really describe the wonders there. And I know, Larry, you spent some time there this week. Yeah, I think everybody spent some time there. But you guys were talking about earlier the B-52 and the A-350 um, and that arrival. When the B-52 came in, um, in addition to it landing, you know, on the third time, I thought uh, it came by with a clean pass, you know, fo- kind of photo pass. Mm-hmm. nice. But then it came around the second time and went all dirty. Gear came down, uh, flaps came down, and it did a, and it did a nice long, you know, pass down the runway cleaned up went around again i just thought that was on purpose i didn't Me know too. until later <laughs> that too. it was you know because you know the the you know yeah what pilot looked and said, that, that what that a, a foot runway on looks a little small enough for you what <laughs> yeah they only you know it's a photo pass when they tip the inside wing for you yep yep exactly but also around the ramp you look at you know uh, b29 fifi was there yeah um haven't seen her in Ages, you know, uh, up close, and uh, we got to use. Uh, and, and she was flying regularly. Yeah, yeah, we got to use the left wing for shade for part of the air show the nice. other night too. That was nice. Um, 
the F-22s, the F-35, uh, the Harrier, uh, the Lancaster bomber, um, P-38 Lightning, and of course we talked about uh, That's All Brother, the DC-3, all these great airplanes, and then others in there, there's some helicopters and whatnot, um, others in there that were... Uh, just stunning to look around you know different years you have different attractions at the west ramp and uh, but boy this was a great year mm-hmm. yeah one of my favorites over there was the uh, non-flying exhibit of richard bong's uh, marge his p-38 yeah. lightning from world yep. war ii uh it, it, highly admired the guy he uh, mm-hmm. he kept going back when they finally rotated him out after his congressional medal of honor and they sent him to uh, uh the uh the air base there in Southern California that became, uh, uh, well, it just went blank. Edwards Air Force Base to be uh, a test pilot. Mm-hmm. And on the day that we dropped the A-bomb on Japan, he died in a crash. Yeah, of course. So a guy that had been front page six column across the top news after the Medal of Honor win got buried in a small paragraph mm-hmm. because we dropped a bomb on Japan. Yeah, and that's always struck me as one of the more tragic tales that, out of the many tragic tales that come out of any war. But it always inspires me to see that airplane over there. Cause just a little guy, yep, with big skills in a combat airplane. We do have, fortunately, an airport named after him up in Duluth. Yep, to there, remind us. I've been up there myself. Yep, there's also a state park uh, here in the Milwaukee area, just south of us, uh, named for him, and it's the old. Uh, air base that was that was going to be there uh, that they ended up not building. You can see they had cleared all the runways. You can still see where the runways were going to be. Cool. Uh, and I guess it was a day or two before they were going to pour the concrete, they halted the project. But Yeah, uh, the end of the war kind yeah. of uh, throttled things back. Yep, uh, for sure. Well, we had... We always get a, a, a series of distinguished visitors who come through here, but probably the one that pilots in particular look most forward to is the annual Meet the Boss session uh, yeah. with the FAA administrator. James was there. Uh, I've talked to him uh, when he's visited the Wichita Aero Club. Uh, naturally, a big focus of some of the questions uh, from the audience and uh, his comments were about PMOR 2, about the lockup of the uh, FAA's uh, working NPRM on this proposal to change mm-hmm. the third class medical. What did he have to say that uh, that lit up pilots, James? Well, I guess he kind of served the role of uh, wet blanket this year here at AirVenture, unfortunately, because we've all heard about the push to reform third-class medical, and he sort of got up there, and immediately all those hopes were doused. Now, he positioned it, and properly properly so. They have finished their work. They've sent that off to the executive branch, their proposals, uh, the OMB, others weighing in, and so he said, I've got no progress to report. He said, I know you're all frustrated. I know we all want to get this over with, and he positioned it as we're getting it right, so we don't want to have to do something halfway, and then three years from now, move it, find we've made some mistakes. Right, like that it. would be a first for the FAA. <laughs> but that didn't seem to be the real issue. He talked about, he said, look, I talked to some very smart people. They're very knowledgeable about everything. We tell them the statistics. We tell them about the mitigating factors we're taking. We give them all the facts. And at the end, they say, yeah, but this is an airplane. It's different because of the framework the FAA set up where people saw that, and before that, the CAA, that somehow 
airplanes were a threat and these regulations were to protect the general public. And if they relax the third class medical, people are worried that somehow airplanes are going to fall out of the sky and land on their house. Yeah, the uh, no better word in my vocabulary, the, the, the part of this blizzard of bureaucratic blowing snow that was some of that mm-hmm. statement was uh, the uh, contention that there are other constituencies that have to be satisfied equally other to perspectives, us. perspectives, as he put it. Yeah, and uh, I'm trying to figure out who what would those, that be? What those constituency, who that constituency is, because as you said, we've got decades of records that show that medical issues have never been a, a root cause of air safety problems. Uh, and the one-offs that they've had from time to time, those people had medicals. And yeah, they all had medicals. They all had medicals. Yeah. And in that rare instance, something new came along. Uh, that uh, the medical couldn't prevent and wouldn't prevent. And the root of the medical is, in my mind, more oriented toward the military's need to qualify Mm -hmm. the best people for combat in World War II because the medical requirements prior to that were nothing like they they became Mm -hmm. for pilots coming into the civilian flight training program. My concern, if somebody isn't safe to be operating that aircraft, I don't want them in a car. I come in the other way on the highway while I'm driving. So, yeah. yeah. There's a, a lot more potential for uh, a medical event causing you problems mm-hmm. when it, when you're driving yeah. because you got traffic two feet away in the opposing lane. Uh, you got guardrails. Uh, you got intersections where people don't see you turn left. Uh, uh, my biggest worry every time I'm out on the motorcycle. Uh, yeah. Unless you're in high-density airspace coming into some place like Oshkosh during the show or one of the big class Bravo airports, that high-density traffic problem is, is doesn't exist. Right. I think the uh, other perspective and the other constituencies they're waiting uh, is, uh, has anybody heard from Chicken Little? Uh, I did see Chicken Little at a party the other night and uh, concretely said the sky is not falling over this proposal. Okay, there you go. It did take a translator. I got him from Frank (laughs) Perdue. Oh, all right. And we saw another unusual aircraft here this week. I think it spent some time on the plaza, the uh, Wright B Flyer, Yes, which is flying here, uh, however briefly. But uh, the uh, crew from down in Virginia, or down in Dayton, Ohio, sorry, Tim, uh, almost slipped up. There's another crew in Virginia that builds replicas. But the uh, Wright folks uh, in uh, Dayton, Ohio, are working on building a new version of the Wright B Flyer with a little more modern technology in the construction and power so that they can show folks what it was like at the beginning of aviation a century ago. I had a lot of talk. Also, people are reading David McCullough's new biography of the Wright yeah. Brothers, and that's really getting a lot of conversation going and focusing attention on Glenn Curtis and this whole era and back to the warped wing. Well, did the Wright Brothers have it wrong, or is it just technology hasn't caught up because now we are seeing an advanced... Uh, in advanced research, some use of warped wing concepts. Yeah, uh, NASA has been working off and on on this for the military for several years. Uh, the adaptive wing, I believe they call it. And uh, it does more than just roll control like the wing warping of the Wright Flyers did. But it's worth remembering that 
regardless of how you view whether they were first or second or, or somebody else did it elsewhere in the world, they were the guys that solved the problem of mm-hmm. the coordinated turn. Mm-hmm. Because up to that point, even they hadn't been able to make it work until they came up with this warping concept. And having flown flexible wing machines down where they taught themselves to fly and getting the biggest thrill of my life, beating their soaring record mm. at Kill Devil's Hill. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it was eight minutes or so. And uh, when I passed the eight-minute mark, well, I won't say what it almost did to me physiologically, but it stuck with me for a long time. Uh, it's amazing what they accomplished, uh, yes. what they learned when there was nothing out there. And, and some information developed by others that t- proved to be inaccurate. So, uh, Just the propeller design alone. That's right. And they invented the wind tunnel. Uh, they came up with the uh, reality that counter-rotating prop would solve some problems. Uh, we're getting the high side. We're going to end up on another break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the uh, social aspects here. And, uh, and so about the attendance. About Thursday night. Folks, you're listening to Uncontrolled Airspace, the general aviation podcast, live on EAA Radio from EAA Oshkosh, EAA Air Venture Oshkosh 2015. We'll be back in a moment. It's a worldwide aviation event that's way beyond what I ever dreamed it would ever be. Thanks, Paul, for everything. This is EAA Radio. And now today's uncontrolled airspace update on weather and safety. First weather. Man, there's some whiskey tangle foxtrot weather out there. And now safety. Try to take off with one engine on fire and you never hear the end of it. And we're back with uncontrolled airspace on EAA Radio. Welcome back to EAA Radio. This is Uncontrolled Airspace coming to you live at the announcer stand at EAA AirVenture Oshkosh 2015. It's closing day. We're running out of time faster than we're running out of list. So, uh, hey, I want to say hi to Jeb and Jack. I'm hoping they're listening. So sorry they're not here with us. Yep, yep. And Jack, I don't want this job again. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we saw the debut. Well, we saw the culmination of a debut that started here seven years ago. Yep, 2008. Uh, uh, an aircraft that actually had a lot of folks walking around saying. I don't see this ever happening the way they want, but it did. It came to fruition. Delivery number one was to EAA. Uh, It's going to be used for young Eagle flights and more, and that was Icon's A5 Amphib LSA. Gorgeous looking airplane. They really do make it look good. They've got some of the slickest video out there that I've seen yet, and it's not CGI. Jack Pelton got a demo flight with Kirk Hawkins, uh, CEO and founder, came into our offices and was just aglow telling us about how fun it was to fly, said that, you know, during this week I've got a lot of responsibilities, but if they call and said, Jack, we got a slot open for you, and I have a members meeting, it would be tough for me to decide which to go to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a beautiful airplane. Uh, they, they seem to have a pretty good, uh, pretty healthy uh, order book already to start out. Uh, we hope it clicks uh, because anything that brings new people or restores old people to uh, older pilots coming back, uh, we're all for it. Uh, it's all yeah. general aviation, it, but that looks particularly fun. It's fun to fly and easy to fly. They've incorporated the angle of attack indicator, and that really is a big part mm-hmm. of this aircraft, making it simpler to fly for people that don't have a lot of experience. 
What else was new? Let's see. We had... Uh, there were some social events this week that were uh, not necessarily new, but uh, a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, a whole lot. Talk about it. Well, I, you know, I always look forward to Thursday night because for that's the UCAP party. The tie-down party. That's right. Yeah, a couple of nights ago I bumped into somebody and, uh, who wondered why I wasn't at a specific party at my favorite uh, little watering hole down in, uh, in, in uh, the older part of Oshkosh. And I said, yeah, it came off my list when we started doing our own party for uncontrolled airspace. We had a great crowd. You guys were there. Yep. Uh, it is always such a pleasure to get reacquainted with listeners that have come before to meet the new faces that have come for the first time. Uh, this year, Steve Tupper brought his drum kit. Yeah, so that we was had, fun. Yeah, we had a little rhythm to go with the guitars. Yep. And uh, you played a little bit. Rick played a little bit. Uh, Mark Phelps uh, played a little bit. Uh, had probably the best selection of adult beverages that we've ever had there. And uh, we got to give credit to Jim G uh, uh, for that, who I was hoping to see here this morning, but uh, he's not here. Uh, to those of you that didn't make it, remember that next year we'll uh, we'll be back uh, probably at probably the same Thursday spot. night, just yeah. north side north side of the field there, uh, watching the planes go overhead, taking off at the end of the day. Some leaving, some coming up just because they're getting up in the air to tool around and enjoy the local sites before they come back in for the uh, the field closes at 8 p.m. Yeah, there's some great photo opportunities of those planes yeah. to go along with the fun. We mentioned uh, early on a little bit about the uh, obvious uh, mob of people in airplanes here and the attendance being up. Uh, uh, it's just I'm, I'm anxious to hear the final numbers because I have a feeling it's going to be gangbusters. But one of the programs here that I wasn't able to make uh, was something that's always been high on my list because it happened when I was still a, a veritable youth. And that was the uh, success in saving the crew of Apollo 13 when they suffered an explosion en route to the moon. Yeah. Uh, and th most of those guys were, were here this week to talk about their experiences. Uh, Jim Lovell in particular, Gene Krantz, uh, another flight director, uh, Fred Hayes, the, uh, surviving, the other surviving crew member. Uh, the, uh, I'm so used to seeing... An Aeroshell AT6 going off. Don't you love the sound of a yeah. T6? Uh, I guess I've gotten so used to seeing Tom Hanks as, uh, <laughs> as Jim Lovell, and uh, and Jim Lovell actually making a cameo when they were on the deck of the recovery ship. Uh, but seeing those guys now. I have to admit, it was kind of a bitter reminder of how old I'm getting to see how old those guys have become. But they're still out there. They're still out there. They're still major proponents of uh, space exploration, of aviation. Mm -hmm. uh, they had a, a couple of great programs, uh, particularly the big mob in a the theater in the woods that was moderated by David Hartman. Uh, if you didn't get to that personally, that's another thing that you can get from the uh, website at uh, EAA uh, because it's all recorded and available for replay. Uh, we had two great night air shows. We sure had did. The, we had the world's only flying to Haviland mosquito here. Mm. A woodworking wonder, as Fred, as uh, our buddy Fred put it. Uh, did you guys get to see that fly at all? Not me. But I did not. 
I, I stepped out just long enough to see it make one last pass before it came back around the land, and of course I couldn't see it again. But I was struck at how quiet and fast and maneuverable it seemed to be. I mean, it had all the tricks going for it, like the P-38. There was another warbird of that era, the Spitfire. Yeah. The, the, oh, that the I home built Spitfire. Spitfire at that. Yeah. That I saw fly. That's spectacular. Yeah. And I got up close to its beautiful job, beautiful aircraft. That man spent eight, nine years on that project. Uh, he's got a, a, a V-12 in it uh, from the... Uh, from the folks in uh, Indianapolis that built the originals. It's uh, really a remarkable piece of work. I wish I'd gotten to spend some time around it. Uh, we had a Lancaster bomber here. Uh, we had one John of only Moody. two yeah. in the world that yep. fly? Yeah, one of only two. We had John Moody, the father of ultralight aviation, flying uh, uh, his, uh, well, it's a, uh, an easy, easy riser, riser now. It was yeah. an Icarus II back okay. in uh, 40 years ago when he first appeared here. That's great. He was one of the many anniversaries you saw here. Uh, other anniversaries that come to mind. Oh, well, we had uh, the Air Coupe was here. 75th uh, anniversary. Pitts, yep. I believe Pitts was celebrating an anniversary. We had a whole bunch of them. So there's no shortage of things to celebrate. The problem is getting to see everything, even if you don't, if aren't in an office writing a newspaper all the time. And we had something here that was a little different than the the norm. The Pilot Proficiency Center was an addition this year. Larry, yeah, tell that, us about it. they had started that last year, but they really expanded it a lot this year. Um, and I know we're running out of time, so I'll kind of keep it short. But they had an IFR section and a VFR mm -hmm. section. It was uh, co-sponsored by uh, EAA, which was in an EAA tent, but also Hartzell, Jeppesen, Redbird Simulators, good. IMC Clubs, yes. Naffy Safe, all those. And they, they set up scenarios that you could come fly. And on the IFR side, uh, there were four different scenarios that involved three approaches um, that got progressively more and more difficult. Um, I did those, and then I had so much fun, I went back and did the uh, first two with an autopilot. So I had my six approaches and a hold and an intercept uh, taken care of. Uh, that's that's sign-offable and sign I had a double eye standing right behind wow. me and coaching me through it. Um, where I, you know Those places where I was a little rusty. On the VFR side, you could do things like the Fisk Arrival ah. uh, in a simulator. You could do uh, simulated night currency. I don't think you could log that, but um, uh, you could go through the process, crosswind landings, landing on an aircraft carrier, whatever. To me, the exciting part about this is that now that they've had a couple of successful years here at Osh doing this, uh, they're talking about taking it on the road so that uh, local EAA chapters will be able to have, you know, on a truck, this equipment come in and be part of their chapter uh, that they can promote there locally for proficiency. Great. Women in aviation had, to, to my knowledge and my eye, the biggest group of uh, ladies in, in, in the aviation community ever to show up on Boeing uh, Plaza for their group photograph. That was a great yeah. photo. Great photo, and I saw Dr. Peggy, uh, the, uh, the, yep. the the brainchild behind Women in Aviation International. Uh, she was, like usual, all over the place. But on the day of the photo, uh, you couldn't you couldn't swing a, a, a no-tam without seeing a, a yeah. woman with that shirt on. Uh, truly extraordinary. Great. Speaking of air coupes, we've got one, one now. coming up the taxiway now. And a couple of uh, about 1958 or 59 172s right in front of it. Yeah, some straight tail 172s. Yeah. Those are old 300s. Uh, Continental six-cylinder, smooth, smooth engine. Smooth. We, 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 uh, we had Bob Hoover here again this year. Mm -hmm. uh, I fretted how many more times we'll see him here at Oshkosh. Mm -hmm. uh, the Warbirds programs up in, the, in their area. 
I don't. They expanded that this year. I don't think it's ever been better. Uh, they did kept our buddy Fred just running crazy, and nobody gets more into it or more excited by it than he does. Fred Johnson, our, uh, our Warbird correspondent expert, yep. Yep. archivist. An- another Edwards. first that I was particularly excited about because I'm building a Sonics was uh, that uh, Bob Carlton flew the uh, Subsonics jet uh, in the night air show for the first time, and it was decked out with LED lighting and smoke and was just terrific. Now, you had a sort of a special kind of seating or a viewpoint for the night air shows. I understand. I did. Uh, most of the you know, most of the EA activities happen on the west side of the 1836 runway. Um, there's a Sonics builder who lives over on the east side of the 1836 runway. So we were able to have a picnic in his backyard and uh, look up and watch the air show. Which at that point, it seems like you must be in the box because it's not out in front of you. It's you over are, you and right, around you. You are in the box. Yeah. The rules are they cannot come over the runway to the west. So mm-hmm. of course they're turning to the east, and you got that wonderful view from underneath it them. was spectacular never done that before but sure appreciate the hospitality and i'm sure you'll be lining yourself up to do it again uh the last thing on my list for uh stuff here uh they built five wing sets yeah. to send out to chapters to finish the airplanes it was like last year's uh, one week wonder program uh they had about 2500 people come through and pull rivets to build a uh, sonex yx wing uh Two Zenith uh, 750 cruiser wings, a uh, 650. Zenith 650 wing. And a Rans, I believe. I'm not sure which model. I think it was the S12. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry, not the S12, the S19. They're, uh, they're LSA, all-metal okay. LSA. Uh, this is a cool project. And we apologize if we got that last one wrong. It's been a long week. We're getting near the end of our allotted time. i got a lot of thank yous here I'm going to go through. Uh First off, the listeners who came to the tie-down party, thank you for making us a success and keeping us going. We can't do this without the great work of the staff here at EAA Radio. These guys make it easy. Uh, Adam Smith and Bill Harrelson. uh, Adam talking about that's all brother. Bill talking about his record flights, uh, the polar route. And, of course, Larry Overstreet, Jim Winbrandt, here co-hosting with me and making it easy for me to sub for Jack. Well, thanks for uh, asking. Us. Thank you. As always, we appreciate your support. We can't do it without you. The uh, tip jar is always open, and we appreciate your support on the website Patreon, where you can designate a donation with each episode, set a limit, uh, and it's done automatically with you every time we post one. Uh, and if you want to cut it off, uh, we certainly understand if you want to limit it. I'm kind of that way with some of my causes. This has been Uncontrolled Airspace, live on EAA Radio from the announcer stand at EAA Air Venture Oshkosh 2015. Uh, next year, it's uh, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31 of July. So is there something we should do now? Uh, go see the show and go fly, because remember, time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. We're done.